Well, today we come to the second commandment. And in some traditions, in the Lutheran tradition, for instance, the first and second commandment are literally combined. And uh, they see the first and second commandment as essentially speaking to the same issue. And um, they divide the Tenth Commandment into two parts. They still end up with Ten Commandments, they just divide it differently. But it's important that we realize that the first commandment and the second commandment are distinct commandments. So we need to respect that, that difference. We need to understand that uh, two entirely different but related, highly related issues are being addressed. But by way of introduction, I've, uh, I've quoted Matthew 22 in your notes. I think it's so often the case that when we look at a study of the commandments, that it's easy to become fixated on some of the particulars, some of the details per se, and to lose sight of the fact that what is really at stake here is to love God. That's really the issue. Uh, And why do I say that? Uh, Because our Savior was asked a question by one of the religious authorities. And the the religious authorities should have known better, but obviously didn't understand the heart issue of the the commandments. And uh, one of them, a lawyer, nonetheless, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, and those from a Jewish background or familiar with the Jewish background know that this particular passage is known as the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus said unto him, to the lawyer, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great command. That encapsulates the first four commandments in the Decalogue, in the, in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus su- summarizes all of those commandments under the umbrella of loving God with the totality of our being. And you know from reading the New Testament that our Savior would often say, you've heard that it was said, and then he will quote one of the, one of the commandments. You shall not, for instance, commit adultery. But they say, but I say to you, if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, she's already committed adultery in his heart. And the Savior was always pointing people to the fact that the commandments are all about the heart, not simply an external observance. And that heart issue is love, complete love for God with all of our being, with our mind, with our will, with our our decisions that we make, the values that we hold. It's all about loving God entirely. Now, who among us could say that we've done that? I think if any of us are honest, we'd say, I've failed miserably. Every day I fail. But that's the great commandment, is to love God. And the second commandment is like it, and he's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18, love thy neighbor as thyself. And this is essentially the, the final segment of the Decalogue, commandments 5 through 10, starting with the, the commandment to honor father and mother and ending with uh, not coveting. Now, they're obviously related. They're all part of the moral law of God. But Deuteronomy 6, I, I've, I've referenced this a little bit earlier, but you, when we see Matthew 22, you, you've got to be thinking Deuteronomy 6 because that's where the Savior goes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, 
which of course speaks of the fact that we have one God, not three, but one God in three persons. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love for God is integrally related with obedience to God. You see that because he says these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. To say that we love God and yet are indifferent or somewhat apathetic towards the entire issue of obedience is missing the point entirely. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So it's impossible to say that we love God without obedience. So these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart, and they're to be imparted, of course, to those in the household, to teach them diligently. You know, that's why we catechize our youth to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. It's to affect the entirety of our being. It's not simply something that, that impacts our interaction with God during a certain time of day. It's, it's the, the entirety of our being. And then I've highlighted a segment a little later in verse 12. Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This, of course, is the preamble to the Ten Commandments that it's, it's embedded in our minds that God commands us because he has redeemed us, that he has delivered us from bondage. Now, he was speaking to Israel, to be certain, but the same factor comes to bear with us today. Why do we obey God? Because he, he, he's redeemed us. He, we, at 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it's it literally to obey God is to love God, and to love God is to have that framework in our heart governing us in all points in all times. Again, we, we fail. We do. But this is, this is the import of the commandments. And to fear only the Lord your God and worship him and swear by his name. How we worship God is vitally important to him. And, of course, he has the the right as God to determine what it is that pleases him and how things please him. So go over to page 2, and David Guzik has summarized what the Reformed people would hold, and and we would hold that there are three aspects to the law. Uh, First of all, we we talk about a, a guardrail keeping humanity on a moral path. This would be a civil aspect of the law, curtailing disobedience and and maintaining order. But a guardrail, keeping humanity on a moral path. A mirror. When we say a mirror, of course, the the law, Paul tells us in Galatians, is a schoolmaster or pedagogue leading us to Christ. Because how would we know that we need a Savior unless we realize that we have broken and continue to break egregiously God's law, and that God is a holy and righteous and just God who never simply winks at sin, always impeccably judges sin, every sin. And that's why hell is eternal, because the, to, for God's justice to be fully satisfied, it could never be meted out. And that's why the Savior did such an absolutely stupendous thing in a matter of hours when he said to Telestai, it is finished, he literally satisfied the judicial wrath of God against lost sinners that he had been sent to save. But a mirror showing us our failure and our need for a Savior. When we look at the law and the law looks at us, 
it conv- our conscience is, is convicted of sin. And it happens, and hopefully it happens every day. We, we look at this and we, we come to the Lord with a contrite heart. Remember that the Lord is a high and holy one who inhabits eternity, but he also dwells with those who are of a contrite and humble heart. And it's a guide showing us the heart of God. And this is very important that we realize this, the heart of God and the desire of God for his people. So when we talk about the moral law and the Ten Commandments or a summation of the moral law of God, we see the enduring qualities of God's heart summarized for us, inscribed for us. And so his heart never changes, and that's why the moral law never changes. Ellen Redpath said, The great message of the Christian faith is that we are free from the law's condemnation in order that we may be able to fulfill its obligation by the power of Jesus within us. My obedience, and this is a key thought, my obedience is not legal. A legal obedience would be I'm obeying begrudgingly because I don't want to get caught or I don't want to be punished. It's, it's, we, we are to fear God, but indeed a legal obedience is not a heartfelt obedience. Any of us who have children know that, those who have taught children know that it's possible, it's possible for adults as well as children, to obey when they are under the watchful eye of their superior and to do it begrudgingly and their heart changes about the instant that they're no longer under the watchful eye. That's not obedience, that's compliance. And there's a very big difference between them. So our obedience is not legal, but inspired by what? Love. Love. We should never lose sight of the fact that the Ten Commandments are all about loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't do these things, of course, on our own. Galatians 3 says that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer to that is, of course not. None of us can be sanctified by the flesh. We're sanctified by walking in the Spirit, by the power of God. Lig Duncan, and I'm going to make extensive use of this. I I had the pleasure of knowing Lig many years ago in one of the churches that we attended here in St. Louis. Both the first two commandments in the Decalogue pertain to the worship of God. Both thou shalt have no other gods before me and not making graven images, etc. The first commandment deals with whom we worship, the person that we worship, the object of worship. The second commandment deals with how we worship, and they're related. You can see the, the key word is worship, right? Who do we worship and how do we worship? The second commandment deals with worshiping the, the right God in the right way, the one true God, and both of them address the subject of worship. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to page 7, but before I do that, I'm going to say, why are you skipping all these pages in between? And I'm getting a few looks. But the reason for that is on pages 2 through 6, I've given you the, the catechism and the supporting verses, and I've given you the Christ Fellowship Bible Church Catechism. I've given you the Westminster Shorter Catechism and, and, and the supporting verses behind them, supporting them. And the key to remember is, Bill has brought out, as I brought out, that when we look at the law, there are two aspects to each of the commandments, a duty to perform and a sin to avoid. And so there are these two complementary aspects. What should we be doing and what should we be not doing? And why are we doing it? Because the the scripture, particularly in the second commandment, will give us a very specific reason for what we are to do and not to do. 
So I'm going to go over to page seven, but I wanted to explain to you that that's there for you simply to know what do we teach in our catechism, and it's very similar to what the Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches. The difference is the Westminster Shorter Catechism goes into greater detail on why we do what we're asked to do, not asked to do, what we're commanded to do. And, and so you've got the reasons annexed to the second commandment at the top of page seven. So on page seven, the, when, when we go to the issue of the second commandment, and, and what is the second commandment? Uh, let me read that to you. The second commandment. is this, if I can find the right page. The second commandment is, you shall not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This comes from the, our citation in our own church's catechism. And you shall not, uh, or the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down thyself to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God. And here, this four, this four, this is explanation, this is the motivation, this is a, a purpose statement that is about to, to, to follow. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And we'll talk about what that means. Our intuitive response to the word jealousy is entirely different than what the scripture means by the fact that God is jealous. So, Please don't import a human dimension of jealousy into this description. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, to disobey is to hate God. That's really what, what the scripture is saying. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me. And those who love God do what? They keep his commandments. So to disobey is to hate God, and to love God is to keep his commandments. But we always do it because we, we love him. So back over to page 7. But I wanted to read that, that to you. When we talk about images, and, and we're going to make a, a very important distinction, sometimes people will fixate on, does this mean that in my children's Bible that has pictures of Jesus that somehow I violated the second commandment? If it's got pictures of Jesus, it's violated the second commandment. But you need to understand why it's violating the second commandment. And not, not simply, it's not, the scripture's not anti-art. So that's not the issue. It, it's really, the question is, is this all about artwork? It's not all about artwork. It's, as, as I'll say, one of my thesis is that the second commandment is not about artwork, it's about heart work. And there's a very big difference between those two. So, the creator of heaven and earth and water must not be confused with creation. Everything that God has made, he made, he's, he's ordained these things. But does that mean that visual arts are per se uh, not acceptable? And the answer is not, because there's any number of instances where the scripture talks about wonderful artistic creations but you will not find any instances where the scripture describes an artistic creation of God. And you will not find any instances where that we're told to do such a thing, to make an artistic creation of God. Why? Okay, we'll get to that. The reason is that God is, is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He is a just God. And he has a zeal for his own glory. So Kevin DeYoung makes a statement, the second commandment does not intend to outlaw art or painting or aesthetic considerations. 
The tabernacle displayed angels and palm trees. The ark will have cherubim that God himself gave us, gave to the spirit, to, to Bezalel and Aholiab, that they might be skilled artists and craftsmen. God is not anti-art. Okay, so we need to get that. What he prohibits, and this is a very important thing, is infusing any object with spiritual efficacy as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. Now, some of you have come from a Catholic background, and I'm seeing some nodding heads, and you know that there are all of these representations or all of these artifacts, all of these things, and the, the rationale behind them is that, is that, no, we're not worshiping these artifacts or these images, but they're facilitating our worship. That's the argument that's, that's made, and that is a, a non-scriptural argument that is, that is not supported by Scripture. Artwork is not intended to fo- foster our worship of God. When we see creation, we, we, it, Romans 1 tells us that it testifies to God. So when we see what God has made, we, we should say, thank you, God, for the miracle of what you have done, the majesty of your creation, the beauty and the diversity of your creation and your sustaining power and, and all of these things. What God has made testifies to who he is. But, and so God is not anti-art. He's given any number of instances. But the Old Testament, however is full of examples of people using man-made artifacts for self-willed worship. And so that's really what the second commandment is about, is self-willed worship. Top of page 8. So my thesis is that the second commandment is not ultimately about artwork. It's ultimately about heart work. What do I mean by that? So I've got a number of points that I will will unpack as we go along. God will not be worshipped by caricatures of who he is. Now, when I use the word caricature, please understand that any visual representation of God will be inaccurate and it will be inadequate. We have no idea what what Jesus looked like. And and, and so there's no indication other than that that he he suffered greatly at the hands of men— but we, any representation that we have will be inaccurate. I can, we can rest assured that it will be inaccurate, and it will be inadequate. How do I know it's inadequate? Because the Creator cannot be contained. We can't reduce God, second point, to a picture or a characterization we have imagined. Artwork representing God is a product of our imagination. And imagination within certain bounds is is certainly a wonderful thing. But when it comes to imagination and intruding into the commandments of God, then we've transgressed the, the purposes of God. Third, God, because he is God, is non-negotiable in how he chooses to be worshipped. Now, sometimes we recoil with the, the fact that our our choices are limited, but who's God? God is God, and we're the creator, or we're the creation, right? Now, there are two views. We'll talk about the regulative principle of worship. We, we, we adhere to the regulative principle of worship. There are two general views. One of them is if, if the Scripture does not prohibit it, it's okay. The other one is that we do what the Scripture tells us to do. The latter is the, is the correct understanding. What you see in our culture is if God doesn't specifically prohibit it, then it's okay. That's what's led to the, this, this vast array of, of light shows and drama and ballet and all sorts of other things that are going on. It, 
I'm not being facetious. It's, it's all around us. And so you can justify any number of things by saying, well, God has not said anything about ballet. He's not said anything about men in tights on, this, on, the, on the, the platform. That's happened in PCA churches of all places. It doesn't say anything about drama or light shows. Well, that's true. It doesn't. What does the scripture say? The scripture says that the word of God is to be handled. The word of God is to be sung. The word of God is to be prayed. The God gives us his inerrant and holy word to direct us how we are to worship. And he has and, and does enjoy the prerogative as God to, to determine what it is that pleases him. And if we love God, we will do what pleases him, and we will avoid doing what displeases him. Fourth, he has revealed to us in his word all that we need to know about what pleases him. And so we, we go back to sola scriptura, one of the, 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 the very fundamental points of the Reformation, that the word of God is is not only adequate, but it is, it is sufficient and is authoritative for all that we need to know about faith and practice. And then the fifth point, ultimately, it's all about loving God and pleasing him. Obedience and submission please God and show our love for him. So, Lig Duncan, I came across a, a message that he gave on the second commandment, and I will make great use of it. But he makes three points that, first, God's self-disclosure and self-revelation is to dominate our conception of him. And he makes the point, which we've established earlier, that God is not anti-art. But the second commandment is a command that God is not to be pictured. He is not to be visually represented. And he goes to Deuteronomy 4.15. There are any number of passages, but Deuteronomy 4.15, the scripture says, Watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image. And the point is, you didn't see God, so don't try to picture him. Who among us has seen God? The answer, of course, is none of us have seen God. So when God is pictured, that is a figment of our imagination. We're exercising a liberty that the scripture does not give to us. So the commandment is not only to abstain from making pictures of false gods or visual representations of false gods. It's a commandment that we not visually represent the true God. Top of page nine. Now, there are different views on this. But when we get to Exodus 32, it's Lig's point of view that what Aaron was trying to do was not introduce a multiplicity of foreign gods. He was trying to depict God with the golden calf. The reality is, regardless of what his intentions were, he did exactly that. He hijacked the true religion and led to polytheism and syncretism. Syncretism, as, as Bill explained to you earlier, is this mix between truth and error, and it's this amalgam of true doctrine and false doctrine. And it's like if you had a glass of nice water and someone had a few drops of arsenic and they dropped it in there, you've got a mix. Would you drink that water? I don't think you would. I hope you wouldn't. And that's what happens in syncretism is you've got this amalgam of truth and error, and it always leads to devastating results anytime you mix truth and error. Truth is to be maintained as truth. So the point that's being made is that to make images of God as well as is, other gods as well as to make images of the true God. And why? This is in the middle of, the, of page 9. It's because God's self-disclosure in the Bible 
God's self-revelation, his revealing of himself, his revealing of himself through Moses, is to dominate our conception of him. So the Bible, and not our own imagination, is to determine what it is that we see God as and what we think about God. Understand, and I'm going to move this beyond a superficial level, it's not only a visual representation, it's a mental imagination. And visual representations inevitably lead to mental imaginations. There's a reason that we spent about 30 weeks going through the doctrine of theology proper, the doctrine of the Father. There's a reason that we went through a long series on the doctrine of Christ. And there's a reason that ultimately, at some point, Lord willing, we'll go through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because in order for us to think rightly about God, where do we go? To the Scripture. And God has revealed to us everything that we need to know about God. And anything that he has not revealed, we don't need to know. And, and things that he has told us to avoid, we should avoid. And, and so we live in this last paragraph. It's an interesting point. He says, we have a whole generation that is encouraging us in idolatry in this area. It says, well, we can think about God however we want to think about God. It says about things in the Bible, well, I really don't think about God that way. I like to think about God in another way. Now, I've had conversations with people. I remember years ago we were on a missions trip and we had one of these roast the pastor or whatever they called it. It was like I was up there and I was on a spit and they were supposed to be roasting me or whatever the case was. It was like free for all for about two hours. And someone in the audience said, my God would never send people to hell forever. And I said, you're right. Your God would not do that. But your God is not the God of the Bible. And we live in in a a time when people say, I don't really want to think about God that way, or I find it objectionable that that God depicts himself in this way, or my God would never. Anytime somebody starts with my God would never, you need to really be listening carefully because it's possible that what they're going to describe is an idol. Because if they're describing somebody else other than what the Bible describes, they are describing an idol. And instantly they're engaged in false worship. And you've automatically engaged in a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That doesn't mean we can have other gods after him. When it says you have no other gods before me, period, you have no other gods, period. The God of the Bible. So we live in in this very pluralistic world, and it has infiltrated the thinking of of evangelical churches. And individual preference has supplanted biblical authority. What do I mean by that? Well, when when we go to a worship service and someone says, that didn't please me, well, guess what? It's not supposed to. It, it, the purpose of a worship service is to, is to adore God. It's, is God pleased? That's really the question that we should be asking in any worship service. Is God being pleased? And he's really the focus. That, he's the only focus that we have. We, and, and we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and, and that means the totality of our being. And he will determine, and he has determined, and has revealed to us in his word how he is to be worshiped. And, and that should be our only, it must be, our only guiding ethos is, or what, is what we're doing, does it please God? 
And at the top of page 10, by God demanding that he not be pictured, that he not be visually represented, he requires you only and solely to conceive of him as he is described in the word. Now, I'm going to share something with you. This last week in God's providence, I saw a, an email, and it, it said there's a book coming out called The Portraits of Christ. And it's got 40 portraits in it. I'm going to show it to you. Now, don't wince. Don't wince. I'm not going to violate the second commandment. There's no pictures, no visual art in here. Do you know what those 40 pictures are? The 40 pictures, Alpha and Omega, the altar, the apostle of our faith, the banner, bronze serpent, the captain of our salvation, the chosen. Those are the pictures, and I wanted you to know that. This is a beautiful book about pictures of Christ. Every description is engraved by the hand of God, not the hand of man. There's a big difference between them. I literally just got this book yesterday. I wanted, I was going to describe it to you, but in God's kindness, I got it yesterday, and I wanted you to see all of these beautiful pictures. Where do those pictures come from? The Bible. So has God given us a panoply of pictures about himself? Yes, he has. It's in the word. It's not artistic, but it's revelation of who he is. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And Jesus is is the one who from all eternity has existed. He's, He's the son of God. And, and he's described, remember we went through the I am statements? Those are pictures. So how should we be filling our mind and how should we be directing our children in terms of understanding who God is like? Through artwork or through God's pictures? The answer, I think, is obvious, right? Because any visual representation of God will be inevitably inaccurate and inadequate. And if it's inaccurate... Yeah, I guarantee you it will be inaccurate because how can the infinite, eternal God be reduced to a, a painting? He can't. How, how can the, the, the Shekinah glory of God be reduced to a sculpture or a piece of art or, or something of that nature? He can't. It's impossible. So what should fill our mind when we come to worshiping God? It would not be visual images. It should be the, the which, which must fill our mind when we worship God is what has God said about himself. Do we believe that God in his word has given us literally everything that we need to know so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth? John 4 tells that. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and, and she was fixated on, you know, something else. And, and Jesus said to her, God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. He is a, a God is spirit. And the, and the, the Reformed Confessions would tell us God is spirit, not a spirit, but spirit, and has not a body like man. Now, God himself, the second person of the Godhead, took on human flesh and continues to have a human body, glorified in heaven. But we don't know what Jesus looked like, and it's not important that we know what Jesus looked like. What we need to know about Jesus is what the Scripture tells us in his words and his works. And where do we go to get that? the Bible. Will the Bible ever mislead you? No. Will the Bible give you everything that you need to know about our triune God? Yes. Do we need to add to the Bible? 
No, we, we already, I think, established the, the doctrine of sola scriptura, one of the important Reformation doctrines. So, number two, God's nature and revelation is to control our worship of him. That was just a prelude to what this on page 10 is all about. Not only must we think of him, middle of the page, in accordance with his word, we must worship him in accordance with his word. God's nature, God's revelation is to control our worship of him. And then at the bottom of the page, friends, a great challenge is in the area of worship is mental and volitional. Now, top of page 11, what do I mean by mental and volitional? I'm talking about what, do, what occupies our thinking when it comes to God? What occupies our thinking when it comes to the Lord Jesus? When we talk about the name of God, I had a conversation with someone recently is it okay to pray all of these names of God? Of course it is. If the scripture, you know, Jehovah Jireh and, and Jehovah Rapha and, and Elohim and Adonai, as long as, as we speak with intelligence, we're not just simply repeating words. We're not just, it's not a mantra that we're repeating. We need to know what's behind those words because when, when we worship God, we worship him with our mind, with our intellect, and it should be informed by Scripture. We should know what those words mean, but because each one of the names of God is fully laden with significance, so simply reciting the names doesn't necessarily lead to intelligent worship any more than reciting a particular prayer verbatim necessarily leads to intelligent worship. It can, but in every instance, what we do, our minds have to be fully engaged always have to be fully engaged because we're supposed to worship God in spirit. It's a spiritual exercise and in truth. So our minds are fully engaged. When we talk about the name of God, you understand that when we talk about the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is referring to everything that God has revealed in his words and works about who he is. It's It's a very compact expression. So when that expression, the name of the Lord, Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but I will trust in what? The name of the Lord. Does that mean I'm I'm trusting in Elohim or or Adonai, that word? No, what is the name of the Lord is, what has God shown us about himself in the scriptures? And so what am I trusting in? I'm trusting in everything that God has revealed to us in his word, which is sufficient and authoritative. Everything I need to know about God is revealed to me right now in the Bible. And, and with our minds engaged, and, and he's, he's governing the disclosure because he inspired the, the writers of Scripture so that every word that they wrote is exactly what he wants to, us to have. But Duncan makes his point. There are two ways to commit idolatry on page 11. You can worship something or someone other than the true God. That's the obvious way. Okay, okay. And the second is you can worship the one true God by some other means than what he has appointed. That's the more subtle means. And this commandment, the second commandment, is addressing precisely that situation in worshiping the one true God in a way other than what he has ordained as pleasing him. So the second commandment forbids three things. Number one, making images of either the false gods or the true God. Number two, It forbids false mental images in worship. And number three, by extension, it is forbidding us to use any other means or media than that which God has appointed. Now, this last point 
any other means or media than what is appointed. That is a description of what we call the regulative principle. And at the end of the notes, I've got an article for you about what is the regulative principle. In short, the regulative principle is that God, as God, has revealed to us in his word what it is that pleases him and how he is to be worshipped. And those specific ways in which he has revealed that he is to be worshipped, how he is to be adored, how he is to be served, are to regulate our worship. And so this term, the regulative principle of worship, is exactly that. We don't have the latitude to determine how we will choose to worship God, because God is God, and we are the creator. We're his people. He's redeemed us. And so whenever we go beyond those bounds, we're, we're engaging in what some of the Reformed people have called will worship or self-willed worship, and we don't want to go there. We, we want to do what it is, and we must do what it is that pleases God. I know I've said that a number of times, but we, we can't lose sight of that. So that's why we, we engage in, in a very, described, very defined way of worship. Number three, top of page 12. There are three points that have been made. Number one, God is telling us who he is. He's told us what it is that pleases him. He's given us direction. And then number three, he gives us warnings and promises. The, the warnings, and when we go to the uh, Exodus 20 and we read the second commandment, this little expression for, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. He warns us and he promises us. And he warns us that, number one, he is a jealous God. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we have to be careful when we read that, when we hear that, to understand what is meant. The, the, the image that is given to describe that is a matter of infidelity. If you have a, a, a marital relationship and the husband's affections go in a different direction and, he no, and his wife no longer has the full attention, the full appreciation, the, the full fidelity of her husband, that's adultery. It doesn't have to be acted out upon. It can be a defection from loyalty. And when God describes himself as a jealous God, he's talking about the fact that he doesn't countenance infidelity. That's really what it's all about. It, it angers God that our hearts would go in a different direction because he's purchased us. That's the essence of what it means that God is jealous. He, he's not a God to be trifled with. And when our affections, when our inclinations go in directions that are contrary to him being loved with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, when we engage in worship through our adoration of someone or something else, that angers God. We're not obeying God, and, and he does not tolerate that. And he, he, he insists that, that he receive our full fidelity. Why? Because he's purchased us. He's redeemed us. At what cost? His own beloved son has taken hell upon himself for his people. Literally, has taken hell upon himself so that we don't have to experience conscious eternal punishment. But Jesus on the cross suffered that for us. Look at the cost that was paid and think of the righteousness that has been imputed to us by the perfect obedience of Christ. God's given us both. He's given us absolution from guilt and he's given us absolute righteousness or at least he's credited to us. 
He's not imparted it to us. He's imputed it to us. He's, he's declared that that's who we are in his sight, that we are perfectly righteous before him. And so when God says that he's a jealous God, he is saying, I, 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 it's important that you know that complete fidelity to me is what I insist upon. Otherwise, we're engaging in, in worshiping something or someone other than ourselves. When we go to James 5 at, at 3 o'clock, James is going to be very strident about, about those who worship money. And, and it's, it, it, it's so subliminal in so many ways. It, 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 the article says, you know, it, when we look at the second commandment, and, and maybe you've thought about it this way, I, I suspect I have as well, and you're saying, you know, I, I don't have any gold stuff out in my backyard. I, I don't have any, like, obelisks in my backyard. I, I, I'm not bowing down to some kind of a, a totem pole in my backyard. So I guess I can move, move on to the third commandment because I got this one down. No, it's much more, much more heart work than that. It's, it's not that we're bowing down to a totem pole in our backyard. It's not that we're praying to somebody else other than the one true God. It's, it's that, am I worshiping God with fidelity? Am I worshiping God accurately? Am I worshiping God as he has ordained? Am I seeking to please God because I love God? And that's why I'm circling back to where we started. That's why I took us to the question that was asked of Jesus, what's the great commandment? And this is what the, the Ten Commandments are all about. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But God gives a promise. Not only does he give a warning, but he gives a promise. And, and the promise that he gives is he extends great mercy to those who love him. And who loves him? To those who obey him. Not out of legal obedience, not out of strict compliance, not out of not wanting to be discovered, not, not out of any of those things, but because I look at the God who has redeemed me from bondage, who has purchased me at great cost, who loves me more than I'll ever understand this side of heaven, who cares for me perfectly, and that's my God, and that's your God. If you're, if you're in Christ, that's your God, and, and that's why we love him as we do. And uh, so just down at the bottom of page 13, what's the Lord saying? He's saying that the way we worship is a reflection of our knowledge of God and how seriously we take him. And that's really what worship is all about. Is do we know all about God and how seriously we take him? There's a point that, that Lig Duncan makes that is so important, and that is the only right way to worship God is to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because there is no other way to come and worship the God of heaven and earth because Jesus is the, the way and the truth and the life. And, and apart from the saving work of Christ, none of us, none of us can ever worship God rightly. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I, am I born again? If you're born again, you can worship God rightly. If you're not redeemed by the blood of Christ, you'll never worship God rightly. The only way to approach the, 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 the triune God is, is through the one that he sent to die for sins and to obey him in, in the gospel. And so when we go to how is God to be worshipped, the important thing is to remember it's always through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to purchase us and redeem us and, and to, to make us his own, and we're his own. So you can see that the second commandment is, is much more profound than some type of mechanical observance that I'm not 
dealing with some kind of artwork. It's, it's about artwork. It's about our love for God. It's about our obedience to him that is fostered by a true appreciation for who he is. And it's governed by what he's shown us about himself and the best pictures. The only pictures that really count are the ones that he's given to us. And he's given us a multiplicity of beautiful pictures of himself, not graven by human hands, but by the hand of the Holy Spirit. And you can never go wrong with that kind of a picture of Christ. So if you want to know how to worship Christ, study Christ in the scriptures. If you want to know how to worship God, go to the scriptures because he's given us everything we need to know.